thank you so much for choosing to spend some of your holiday weekend here with us at New City Church. I want to set the sermon up with this story. I think it's pretty funny. This guy was in a lot of pain. His whole body hurt, and he couldn't figure out what the problem was. And so he goes to the doctor, and he says, Doc, like, I am just in pain all over. Like, can you tell me what's wrong with me? And so the doctor looks him over, and he's like, i got to be honest, like, you look perfectly healthy. I don't, I don't know what, what your problem is. Uh, can you maybe like show me? And he's like, well, it just every time I touch something, it hurts, right? So like I'll touch my head and it's like, ah, and all of a sudden I'll touch my, my, my stomach and it's like, ooh, and then it's like, and I'll touch my knee and it's like, ah, and it's like everything I touch is hurts. And in which the doctor looks at him and says, you idiot, you've got a broken finger. Right, right. Here's the thing, right? It is this this one thing affected everything for this guy, this this finger. Everything he touched hurt because of this one thing. And I share that today as we continue our time in the book of Genesis. Uh, Here's the question for us this morning, okay? Uh, What is the worst thing that you can do to God? Like, like what is the one thing, the worst thing that if you do or think or say uh, affects everything else? It's like kind of like the worst thing. Like, it, it might be maybe a certain sin. You might think, well, if I do or say, this, or if somebody does or says this, um, that's, that's the worst thing you do. Or maybe it's like taking the Lord's name in vain, or maybe just ignoring God, or saying he doesn't exist, or, uh, you know, whatever this might be, like, what do you think is, like, the worst thing you can do to God? Keep that in the back of your mind, because we're going to hit that towards the later on in this sermon. Uh, and today, we're actually, it's, you picked a great way to be with us, even though it's the holiday weekend. We're looking at, again, one of the most famous stories in the Bible, and it's also quite confusing. Okay, today we're looking at the Tower of Babel, and if you're familiar with the story, what in the world is actually going on that makes God react the way that he does? And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up with me to Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10, if not, there's a black one around you. And if you do not own a Bible, you can take one of those black ones home. It is our gift to you. Uh, If you were with us last week, uh, we talked about maybe a little bit of the difference between teaching and preaching, and last week was like all teaching, and uh, I got some good feedback, and so this week is like 75% of that. Okay, Um, it's a lot of information. It'll make sense at the end. I just want to encourage you to track with me because, again, particularly Genesis 1 through 11 sets up so much about the rest of the stories that we read in Scripture. There's a lot of themes seen over and over again, and there's a lot of things that can be confusing. And so today, I want to explain some things that might be really interesting or confusing about this story, and then we'll bring it all together at the end. If you can stick with me, I think you will uh, appreciate that. And so here we go. Genesis chapter 10, starting in verse 1. We are picking up the story. Last week, we were with Noah and his family. We saw something really bad happen with his three sons, particularly his youngest son, Ham, trying to usurp authority over the family, right? This new Eden, this new Adam and Noah, like it didn't go, it doesn't go well. Noah dies. His son does something terrible. And today, we're picking up the story, the genealogies of Noah's three sons, and then one of the most well-known stories in the Bible, the Tower of Babel. Here's how it starts, chapter 10, verse 1. These are the family records of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. They also had sons after the flood. So Genesis chapter 10 is a genealogy. This is a selective, it's not exhaustive. So it's not every single person that all the kids that they had. It's a selective genealogy. Uh, Certainly they had daughters too, but in the ancient world, your legacy, inheritance, your family name was tied through the male side of the family. And so it's going to focus on the sons. Now in total, if you were to read all the names of the kids in Genesis chapter 10 and and count them up, uh, you would come to 70, which is on purpose. 70 
is a number that you see a lot of times. You see that there are 70 descendants of Jacob that are mentioned in Exodus chapter 1 when Israel goes into the promised land. Or there are 70 elders of Israel in Exodus 24 when Exodus leaves the promise or leaves, or leaves Egypt out of slavery and is heading to the promised land. Jesus in Luke chapter 10 sends out 70 disciples to go and tell people about who he is and what he is doing. 70 stands for totality and completion. So here are the, 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 the sons, the family lineage that we can all trace back to the Nark. Now, this history of these people, these are kind of maybe a lot of random names to us. They would have been super familiar to the original re- listeners and readers of these stories, which would have been around the time of Moses and the Israelites leaving Exodus when these stories would have begun to be told. Now, uh, this list shows what people groups lived where and the lineage in which they came from. So it even says they settled here, they settled here. So you can kind of, if you were to study this, you can kind of figure out where people ended up being. And then Ham, who was cursed from last week, if you were here last week, uh, it talks about their sons and it gets to Ham. And then it focuses in verse eight on this guy named Nimrod, who was the son of Cush, who was the son of Ham. So this is Ham's grandson. Now you kind of already assume if you were with us last week, Ham is not a good guy. And so his descendants are going to also do some things that aren't great. Uh, He was a powerful and mighty warrior. Uh, Nimrod literally means to rebel, but he was a strong, powerful fighter, warrior, hunter probably, and he was a rebellious person. It says this in verse 8 after listing a bunch of names. It says, verse 8, Cush fathered Nimrod, who began to be powerful in the land. He was a powerful hunter in the sight of the Lord. That is why it is said, like Nimrod, a powerful hunter in the sight of the Lord. His kingdom started with Babylon, Erech, Akkad, and Kalne in the land of Shinar. From, the, from that land, he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kalah, and Rezin between Nineveh and the great city Kala. So uh, this guy is a mighty warrior. He's the builder of cities, or at least his descendants, maybe him and his descendants after him, start building up these really big cities. Uh, some of these cities you might be familiar with from reading other stories in the Old Testament. Now, what's interesting is that if somebody calls you a Nimrod today, it actually means like the opposite of what the name actually really means, right? Like if somebody calls you a Nimrod, it, what they're saying is you're an idiot, right? The doctor could have called the patient in my story a Nimrod. Now, you might wonder, how do you go from a powerful, mighty warrior uh, to idiot? Like, how does that happen? Well, you, you might not know this. You can, act, and this is true, you can literally thank Bugs Bunny for that. Now, here's what I mean. Here's a picture of Bugs Bunny and his hunter, Elmer Fudd. If you remember this story, uh, this hunter was clumsy. He could never catch Bugs Bunny. He would always mess up, always do something dumb. And his name was Elmer Fudd. And it was actually out of irony that Bugs Bunny would call him Nimrod because he was the exact opposite of a Nimrod. He was the exact opposite. And thus, for us today, the, le- the, the meaning Nimrod literally means the exact opposite of how it would have been used in the ancient world. And so this man, this Nimrod, he was a descendant of a ham. So again, you assume probably not good. He is a rebel. And there have been many varying attempts throughout history to to like try to figure out who this guy was. Um, But we don't actually know historically who he was. People point to this person or different people. We don't literally know like who this person actually was. Scripture does not tell us that. But from his line... Babylon and Assyria, both of which become a mighty nation and enemies of Israel, uh, exist and come into being. 
And they are also very perverse in their religious practices. And so from this man, many nations and cities begin to be built. And so uh, the, the, genea- the lineology, lineology, genealogy continues of the lineage, put those two words together. And so it starts to give more names. And then we'll f- fast forward to verse 15. It says this, Canaan, this is Ham's son. So Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn in Heth, as well as the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, and the Sinites, the Arvidites, and the Zemurites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, Canaanite clans scattered. The Canaanite border went from Sidon going towards Gerar as far as Gaza and going towards Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim as far as Lasha. Now, just a, just a little tip for you if you're going to be reading this passage in your community group this week. If you don't know how to pronounce something, you say it fast and with authority and people think it's right. Okay? And so that's all these things are going everywhere. Again, remember Canaan. He was cursed by Noah, and as you're going to see, many of these clans are actually going to create issues for Israel. But many of these people are going to do things that are perverse sexually or otherwise before God's side are going to create problems. And so, again, it's going through the genealogy, and then the chapter ends by naming some of Shem's descendants. Uh, and, and, and Shem's descendants are, are listed to the sixth generation. So his go a little bit further than uh, Ham and Japheth. And then it says this in verse 21 of chapter 10. And Shem, Japheth's older brother, he's, he's the oldest, Shem's the oldest, also had sons. Shem was the father of all the sons of Eber. So he mentions Eber, talks about some other names, and then it goes in verse 25, it focuses back on Eber by saying this, Eber had two sons. One was named Peleg, for during his days the earth was divided. His brother was named Joktan. So Eber is highlighted out of Shem's lineage. He's the fourth generation from Shem. And it is through Eber, why Shem and Eber are then highlighted, that the Israelites come. So this is where Abraham's going to come from the line of Eber, from the line of Shem, from which we get the Israelites. And so they're focused on a little bit more. Now, uh, during, the Pele- during Peleg's time, which was the fifth generation from Shem, the earth was divided. Now, this could be in reference to the Tower of Babel that we're just about to read here in a second, although we don't know conclusively, but it points out Peleg. But, but what you see here in chapter 10, in verse of all these names and genealogies, one thing that sticks out is nations start to form and cities begin to be built. That's what you see happening in Genesis 10. And so this is explaining to the Israelites. So later on, they, uh, after Abraham has lots of kids and all those sort of things, they eventually end up in Egypt. They're enslaved for 400 years, and then they leave Egypt, and they're headed to the promised land. Uh, these stories are, t- are telling, here are the people groups surrounding the Israelites that are in the regions that they are going to travel from. Now, certainly there are other nations and people groups that are around in, at, at this time that are not mentioned here because they are not relevant or impactful to Israel's story or God's story of redemption. So this is not necessarily saying by the end of Genesis chapter 10 that these are all the peoples all over the earth. What this is saying is these are the peoples in the area that are going to be impactful for the Israelites of whom God has chosen, Abraham the Israelites, and then the Messiah of the world is going to come. So again, you can read these, you can study these, a bunch of names. Things are starting to be developed. Cities are beginning to be built, which leads us to a very particular or peculiar story of a city in Genesis chapter 11 that says this, and starting in verse 1. It says, The whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. As people migrated from the east, 
they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make oven fire bricks. They used brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let's make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered throughout the earth. Now, again, remember, when it says earth here, it's literally translated as land. It could be talking about, you know, the earth as we know it. But again, when we think earth, we think globe. That probably is not, that probably, that isn't what they're thinking in the ancient context. And so when it says that the whole earth had the same language, it could be saying that everybody did. Or it could also be saying at least everybody in this particular land area spoke the same language. But regardless, there's a whole bunch of people. People are starting to populate. Cities are starting to be built. They can all communicate with with, and work with one another, and they want to build a tower to the gods, right? Now, you also can know this, again, as we've been reading, picking up things that are repeated, anytime or most times when something is referred to as going to the east, it is not good, right? Adam and Eve were banished to the east of the garden. Cain kills Abel. He goes further east, and so typically when you go east, you're going further from God's presence. Something bad is going to happen, which is exactly what is happening here, And so they're going to build this massive city with this massive uh, uh, temple complex, which we'll talk about here in a second. And it then says this in verse 5, if you keep reading. It says, Then the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that the humans were building. The Lord said, If they have begun to do this as one people, all having the same language, uh, nothing, nothing that they plan will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth and they stopped building the city. Therefore, it is called Babylon, for there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. Now, you read this and you're like, what is happening here? Like, what exactly is going on? And is God really afraid of humans? Right? That doesn't make a lot of sense. How in the world is God, who's the creator of everything, like, is he really scared of people? And why does he intervene in such a way as to make it impossible for them to continue to do what they are doing? And so, I don't know, I remember growing up as a kid, like, hearing this story and being super confused. Maybe you've had this, some of these questions, like, what's the problem here? Right? Is it cities that God has a problem with? Now, to be fair, in the Old Testament, as cities are being introduced, they are typically most often uh, neutral or negative. So a lot of bad things happen in cities. I don't think it's because cities are necessarily bad, but it's because when human evil gets together, it can kind of multiply bad things. But is it cities that God has a problem with? I always thought if cities were the problem, that is pretty strange because today you've got cities that are so large, like Tokyo, some of these big cities, you might even have more people living like in Tokyo at large than you do have uh, doing the living at the entire earth at this time, right? So like, is it cities a problem given how massive cities are today? Like that was kind of confusing. Uh, another question I had was, well, if it's not cities because cities are still around today and they're a lot bigger, is it how big or tall the building is? Which again, I thought is interesting because buildings today are way bigger. I mean, we even shooting people up into the, to the moon and to Mars and to all these places. Like surely that can't be the problem because they've got even bigger today. And so the question is, What's going on here, right? What is actually the problem? 
Now, it's helpful to know, in the, in the Near Eastern ancient times, especially around the time that this would have been built, this city would have come into being, um, we don't know exactly you know, where it would have been exactly, uh, but when urbanization started happening historically, when people started to build walls, instead of being everyone being nomadic, they would kind of stay in one central area, start building commerce together, start to farm, start to domesticate animals. Um, a city was not designed to house people. So just when you think of city in the ancient world, it's a little bit different than us. It's not necessarily designed to house people. People did not necessarily live in the city, or the majority of them didn't. They lived around the city, and inside the city is where commerce and trade and religious practice took place. Now, it's also helpful to know, just in Scripture, uh, when it talks about cities, again, you don't want to think necessarily massive skyscrapers with millions of people. Literally, a city means that they had as a wall. So they were just starting to build a wall structured. If it's helpful, you can even think of, you might be familiar with like Jerusalem. Maybe you've seen pictures of ancient Jerusalem if you've been around church, right? When you talk about Jerusalem, there's a wall city that the temple is in Jerusalem, but the, the, the wall itself is not that big, right? Most people didn't actually live inside the wall part of Jerusalem. They all lived outside of it. But regardless, people are coming together. They're living in one area. They're not being as nomadic anymore. And so, again, it's helpful to remember uh, that in these cities, they comprised of public buildings with various uses, most of which were connected to the temple. Essentially, cities originally, many of them became to be temple complexes. So uh, the tower that they would have built here is undoubtedly what is known as a ziggurat, right? A ziggurat. The tower would have been a ziggurat. And in ancient Mesopotamian literature, almost every time when it says like with a tower at its top in the sky or with its head in the heavens, it's talking about a ziggurat. It's an idiomatic way of saying a really tall tower. Like for us, we use words like skyscraper. Now, a skyscraper is not actually like scratching the sky, but when someone says skyscraper, skyscraper, immediately something comes into your head. When they say with its tower in the heavens or with its top in the sky, this is what have come into your mind. So here's a picture, uh, just so you can know. It would look something like this. Again, we don't exactly know what the Tower of Babel itself looked like either, but it would have looked like something like this. And probably the one in Babel was probably a lot bigger or a lot taller than most. In fact, these ziggurat towers actually eventually give way to the pyramids we see in Egypt were kind of a modified version of this. But this is essentially how they would have looked. And understanding its function helps us know exactly what's at issue here. So if you can track with me for a couple minutes, let me just explain to you how this works and then how we can better understand Genesis 11. Uh, I personally, just cards on the table, am persuaded that the issue in Genesis 11 is not pride, although that's not a good thing. Like we're going to make a name for ourselves, which is not good. I don't think that's primarily the issue, nor do I think the primary issue is urbanization of people living in a city. Um, after all, Israel eventually has a capital city as well called Jerusalem. And if you remember, God's blessing was to be fruitful and to multiply. It was not to be fruitful and spread out. Now, obviously, if you are multiplying human beings, you probably are going to spread out. Um, but whether or not someone has a, uh, whether or not someone spreads out or not, that doesn't change the number of people who are there. So, so you're going to spread out. Obviously, that's the goal. But the, 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 the blessing itself was to be fruitful and multiply. And so I am persuaded, at least that the issue here, is that what these people are doing or what they think they are doing with this massive ziggurat is the, actually the biggest problem. So, so here's, what a ziggurat, here's how they would have viewed it in the ancient world. So a ziggurat was viewed as essentially a stairway to heaven. It was a means by which the gods or divine beings or the messengers of gods moved between heaven, earth, and the underworld. You can kind of think of it like a, a modern-day portal, right? They kind of viewed this as a portal. 
And the stairway, you'd have various stairways leading up to the top. Uh, the stairway was a visual representation of what it was believed to be used by the gods to travel from one realm to another. Uh, these ziggurats were solely for the convenience of the gods and were maintained in order to provide the deities with amenities that would refresh them along the way. So these ziggurat structures were massive, but people didn't really spend a lot of time on them. And so at the top of the ziggurat, uh, you would have what was known as the gate of the gods. It was, a, it was their portal if you will. And at the, the top, the top there was usually a room that included a bed and a table. This is where they would kind of come into our world. And then at the bottom nearby was a temple. So you'd have a big ziggurat and then you'd have a temple right next to it. And the hope of the people building these cities and these big uh, worshiping temple complex was that the hope is that these deities would descend down from the ziggurat tower, receive the gifts of worship from the people at the temple, and, and be uh, pleased with people and bless them. So the ziggurat wasn't necessarily for for public use, but it was the temple temple area where the gods were disposedly descended to. So they'd come to this thing and then they'd go into the temple where the offerings and the sacrifices were. Hopefully you appease them and they bless you. So here's why this is helpful to know, okay? The Tower of Babel was a pro project is a temple complex featuring a massive ziggurat, something like this, which was designed to make it convenient for the gods to come down to the temple, which would have been located next to it to receive worship from the people. And if they're in a good mood and he likes their you know, offerings, to bless them. That's why you would build this. So the question then is, what is the main issue here? Right? Obviously, you could say worshiping a false god or false gods is a problem. But the question is, why is God intervening in such a drastic way? Because that obviously continued even after this. Like, What is it about what's going on here that causes God to do what he is actually doing? Again, I don't think the primary issue is pride or urbanization. I think it is something else. And so uh, last thing, if, if you're still with me, to help you understand what's going on here. In ancient Mesopotamia, ancient Near East, where this would have been taking place, again, urbanization began to bring about significant changes to also, not just like how people lived, but also how people thought about the gods and their religious practices. You actually see this historically uh, in early Babylonian and the Assyrian empires. They do a lot of the same things. But basically what happened was when people started to settle in one area, it started to become popular to create and set up a system of temples. Again, they're no longer nomadic, so they're going to be here. Let's create a temple um, for, the, uh, for the regional gods or for the local gods. They, they kind of assumed whoever's in charge of this area, there's certain gods in charge of this area. And so we got to create a structure so that they'll bless us so we, that we can stay in this area. The intent was to support and sacrifice to the gods of the local area that you were living in so that they will bless you. And so what you see happening here, especially a shift in the narrative Genesis, is that people were no longer trying to be like God. So you see this earlier with like Adam and Eve trying to make a decision for themselves and, and Cain killing Abel and all these things. Like now the problem is not so much people trying to be like God. The problem here is people were trying to bring God down to the level of humanity. They began to be viewed as acting like humans, that they have to be appeased and done th nice things too, so they will give you what you want. Uh, one rel religious historical scholar puts it this way. He says that the Babylonian gods, although themselves not bound or not not themselves bound by moral or ethical principles, nevertheless appreciated them and expected man to live by them. The Babylonians, it would seem, fashioned their gods in their own image more faithfully than the Israelites did. Theirs. What this person is saying here is when you read historically, like these Babylonians, these, these other pagan nations, they began to essentially create gods in their own image. 
Whereas the Israelites, even if they didn't always practice it, their religious, their religious text and their religious uh, commandments and all these sort of things were showing that, no, God is altogether different than you. In fact, you sacrifice to the God of Yahweh, not because he needs something from you, but for forgiveness and repentance and trust. You sacrifice to the Babylonian gods because they literally need you to survive. And so they don't want to work for themselves. That's why in some of these other ancient creation narratives, it talks about the gods creating people because they kind of got tired of doing all this stuff themselves. So they, they need people in a way. The God of Israel doesn't need people. He just loves them. And so the needs of the gods who would make use of the ziggurat stairway would be served in such ways and they reflect the weaknesses and the distortion of deities brought about the Babylonian use of the gods. This is what is called uh, anthropomorphization. I can't even, I don't even, that's something like that, right? Anthropomorphizing, here's what this means. It's attributing human-like qualities to non-human things. So they began to create human-like qualities to these gods that aren't actually humans. In other words, what's happening in this story is that they are making God or the gods in their own image. Another biblical scholar, John Walton, puts it this way. The offense in this passage, Genesis 11, then is to be found in the beliefs that resulted in the project and what it stood for in the minds of the builders. It went beyond mere idolatry. It degraded the nature of God by portraying him as having needs, having needs. And so in this story, in Genesis 11, they create a ziggurat, a massive worship structure to the gods. And what's interestingly, when, we, when, we, when you read Genesis 11 in verse 6, God does come down, but it's in a mocking way. He comes down mockingly, not to accept what they've done, but to judge it. And so again, in verse six, when God says, nothing they plan to do will be impossible from them or withheld from them, what is happening here is that the uniting belief together, the uniting of these humans has led to terrible results and God is, uh, terrible results. God, again, God is not scared of them, but he judges them in a, man, in a manner to prevent these people from continuing down this path, from continuing down to create, showing us here's how the gods are, here's how the gods act. He's like, no, this is not at all who I am. It's not at all how I, act, uh, how I behave, and so I must stop it. And so now in this story, Genesis 11, it is no longer about humanity being corrupted, which is all the stories up to this point is about how humans have got it wrong. In this particular story, the point is that their view of God, who God is, that is what is distorted, that, that is now twisted beyond recognition. And so humans are shown to be morally destitute in the first right, 10 chapters primarily. But now Genesis 11 is trying to point out that theologically people are in the same boat, right? The people at Babel have lost any sense of who God really is. That's the problem here. If I could read one more quote for you, if you stick with me, John Walton also says this, of course, pagan polytheism in the ancient world, which is just the worship of all these gods, making them kind of act like human beings, is not unique to Babylon. It is the heritage of all Israel's neighbors. And this is, that is exactly the point. This diluted view of God becomes ubiquitous. At the core of this view is the belief that the gods have needs. Worship and human response to the gods in general are directed towards meeting those needs. The gods need to be fed, clothed, and housed. They are pampered, patronized, and manipulated. The heart of paganism is not found in the perversity of rituals, but in the degradation of the deity. When the gods are distinguished only by their power instead of their character, transition, or transcendence, and autonomy, which is the God of Israel, uh, they become like puppets filled with nitroglycerine. Make them do whatever you want, however you can. 
but be careful not to jar them too much or they may explode. And so again, the question for us when we started this morning was this, what is like the worst thing that you can do to God? And I think what Genesis 11 is telling us, the answer is this, the worst thing you can do to God is to make God in your image. The worst thing you can do is make God in your image. Listen, we are image bearers of God, but in this story, they are making God image bearers of humans. The worst thing you can do is make God in your image. It kind of like, it makes me think of when I was growing up, they've changed it a little bit, but um, when I was growing up, you'd play video games and like the sports games and you can create your own player and you can make them look however you want. And then you can give them like all 99 attributes, right? They can just make them like amazing. And you know, what's interesting when you ever do this, you always make your player look like you a little bit, but like an idealized version of you. And so I don't know why, whether it was like hockey or basketball or football, any of these games, I would always be like 6'2", so a little bit taller. Uh, You know, I got a lot of muscle. So probably about the muscles were the same, um, you know, but like clean cut, like, you know, and I was like, this guy's awesome, right? The problem, however, for us, when we make God in our image is the God that we create, his attributes are not all 99s. When we make God in our image, we make him objectively worse, objectively worse than who he actually is right? Already we've seen, even in the first 11 chapters, God's patience, God's love, his promise of redemption, uh, his love that is based not on your efforts, but because you were created in his image, that human beings are value, and your value is not given to you based on how smart you are, how much money you have, the friends that you make, what you look like. Your value is inherently created in you being a human, that he loves us, again, not based on our efforts. And so when you think about it, this is who God is. He's patient, he's kind, he's gracious. He invites people in even after they repeatedly sin and fall short over and over and over again. How, why would we want to create a God in our image when this God is so much better? Or maybe think of it this way, right? Would you, want to, would you want God to treat you the way you treat other people when you're angry with them? No, you'd, I wouldn't, right? Would you want God to every time you stab someone, he, you stab him in the back or you lie or you cheat to punish you in a severe way, to cut you off, to end the relationship? I don't think that's what you would want, right? A God in our image does not lead to the gospel. A God in our image does not lead to leaving heaven to come down to an earth that has rejected him, that has gone their own way, to not to be served, which doesn't make a lot of sense because he is God and he created everything, but to serve us, to love those who don't deserve it, to give grace to those who don't deserve it, to literally lay down his life so that anyone who would trust and follow and repent can experience the grace and mercy of God. And it's not at all based on what you do, but purely based on what he has done because he loves you, even though you and I continually fall short short and go our own way, right? A God in our image does not lead to that. A God in our image leads to, hey, if you do, do enough stuff and you don't stab me in the back too much and you, you, you do whatever I want you to do and you, and you follow by my rules, then I'll accept you. That does not lead to the gospel of how God actually treats us. This is what Genesis 11 is getting at. These gods that they are creating are not who I am. This is why next week when we get to chapter 12 and we start God revealing himself to Abram, who's going to change his name to Abraham, God has to show us in a new way who he is because we've gotten so far off course. This is what Genesis 11 is about. What happens when you create God in your image? You get so far away from who he actually is that God becomes practically unrecognizable. That's what happens. And so if you read the rest of Genesis chapter 11, which we won't this morning, but if you read the rest of it, you'll see that again, it goes back to focusing more on the lineage of Shem, 
who again, from who Abraham is going to come from. And again, we are left, after you read this story, looking for the promised one who will make all these wrong things right. Like, we are morally destitute, we are theologically destitute, like, who's going to be the one to redeem us? That is where the story is pointing to. Who's going to be the one to do for us what we clearly cannot do for ourselves? And so again, in chapter 11, you see that the human lifespans begin to shrink, which will ultimately leave us, lead us to Abram, who we'll look at next week. Now, as I want to close, I want to read one more passage of Scripture. One of the things we talk about often, we, we said this last week, is that Scripture is a unified story that leads to Jesus. And when you read and understand these stories in the Old Testament, Jesus kind of goes from like this black and white image to an image full of color. That you begin to read stories in the New Testament in a new light because you see that these New Testament writers are patterning based off of the Old Testament saying Jesus has fulfilled all of these things. And wouldn't you know it, there is a patterning, a repatterning of Genesis chapter 11 in the New Testament. It's in Acts chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 2, this is after Jesus has died, resurrected. He has gone back into heaven. This is the day of Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit for the first time is going to fall on believers, those who are following and trusting in Jesus. Again, this is about 40, 50 days after Jesus has ascended back into heaven. And it says this in Acts chapter 2 to be on the screen. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. So the believers in Jerusalem were all gathered together. Suddenly, a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven. Remember, when you read Genesis, wind and spirit are the same word. And so what happens in Genesis, uh, was it eight? What happens in Genesis chapter one, when there's chaotic waters, God's spirit comes and brings life out of the darkness. So you can say, oh, the violent rushing wind, God must be doing something to bring life and recreation to the disorder. So suddenly a rushing wind came from heaven and it filled the whole house where they were staying. They saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were Jews staying in Jerusalem, devout people from every nation under heaven. So Jerusalem was a big tourist attraction, if you will. Lots of different people would come and go at various different times. Verse six, when this sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one of them heard them speaking in his own language. So these tongues that these people were speaking were actually human earthly tongues. They were speaking other people's languages. And so everyone from these other parts of the world began to hear their language being spoken. So they're confused. They come and listen. Verse seven, they were astounded and amazed saying, look, aren't all these people, all, all these who are speaking Galileans? In other words, aren't these like Jews from a specific area? How do they know all of these languages and dialects? How is it that each of us can hear them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia, and Judea, and Cappadocia, and Pontus, and Asia, and Phrygia, and Pamphylia, and Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts. Converts are non-Jews, Gentiles who had started following the way, started following Jesus. Verse 11, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the magnificent acts of God in our own tongues. They were all astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But some sneered and said, they are drunk on new wine. Now, I don't know how you get drunk and start speaking languages you've never learned before, but that's how they, some of them were justifying it, right? And so if you continue to read Acts 2, what you see happening is that then Peter, one of the leaders of the early church, preaches a gospel message and over 3,000 people are saved in one day. 
And what you see happening in Acts 2 is that once people actually know who God is, who have seen his character, who know what it means to be redeemed and to save, now that we know, everybody needs to hear this. In Acts chapter 2, this is a great regathering that reverses the judgment of Genesis chapter 11. That is how it is supposed to be read and understood. Again, scripture is a unified story that leads to Jesus. Now that people know who I am, let's get them together and let's tell them who God actually is. Or I put it another way, we'll, we'll close with this. Here's what we see happening here, that grace now gathers what judgment once scattered. Grace, God's love, his kindness, his patience. He's bringing people together, not because they've earned it or deserved it, but because now that they know who God is, how he operates, what salvation looks like, who Jesus is, you need to go and tell everybody that this is the way to receive the grace and mercy of God. Now that you know who he is, let's go and tell everyone. Let's tear down these dividing walls. Let's learn these other languages. Let's spread the good news of who Jesus is. In Genesis 11, God confuses and scatters because what they're doing is not good for them. And in Acts 2, he brings them together now that they have understanding of who God actually is. And this is the gospel, right? It's the good news of God's grace. That no matter where you're from, I mean, these people would have had, if we were to put modern language on it, racial, they, they would be racially hostile, racially hostile to different people groups. And yet they're all together, all speaking the same language or hearing the language of the gospel spoken in their language. Acts 2 is bringing together understanding and grace and mercy that this is the good news of God's grace. You need to hear it. This is why, again, I would say the most dangerous, the worst thing you can do is make God in your image. Because a God in your image, a God in my image, does not lay down his life for people who do not deserve it. Does not give him himself, who people repeatedly turn their own way and say, hey, if you want to receive my love, you don't have to do anything. You just have to ask for it. A God in my image would not do that.